So as I said, we're going through Joshua chapter 10 today. We're going through the book of Joshua in general, and it's been such a blessing. And in chapter 10 in particular, we see some pretty crazy stuff go down, and one of which is obviously verses 12 and 13 of Joshua chapter 10. So in those verses, Joshua says a crazy prayer, and it's answered, and the sun and the moon literally stand still for a day. So it sort of blew my mind, and hopefully it blows y'all's mind. But as I thought about it, I realized more and more, and as I dwelled on the, the subject, I realized that prayer is just not a good thing. And that might be a shock for you guys, but let me, let me explain a little bit. So um, earlier this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we were in Savannah with a two other couples that we're really close with, my sister, her family, and a couple of her cousins. And um, we all have babies, but two of the couples are first-time fathers. I'm a first-time father. My son is only three months old. He's in the back sleeping. You might hear him scream his head off, but forgive him for that. Um, but we, anyways, we're in Savannah. We're spending time with these other couples, and all the wives plan this surprise for the, the fathers. So the three fathers wake up Monday morning, we get these letters, we open them up, and it's essentially a scavenger hunt type thing with stops along the way. So the first stop in the scavenger hunt, after we answer some dad joke questions, the first stop in the scavenger hunt is to go to Savannah Combat Club. So I'm not a boxer, and I don't know how to box really. I know maybe a little bit about it, but anyways, we go to the Savannah Combat Club, and if you can imagine watching a movie you typically see combat clubs. It's kind of like grungy. It probably smells really bad. I can confirm it smells pretty bad. And people legit are fighting and, and beating each other up. So we go to this combat club, and our trainer is this ultimate fighter who was in the, the finale of Ultimate Fighter, which is a TV show. And then he was a UFC fighter for some fights. I don't know how many, but he's a pretty intense guy. And then there's this other dude there who's like, he's just like, Jack, but he's like kind of short. He's Jack, and he's like he looks like he's gonna he's gonna beat you up, you know. Like if you say the wrong thing, he might just punch you. So he was like the main guy that this UFC fighter trainer was training. But then there's the three of us guys who know nothing about boxing, and the the Ultimate Fighter trainer starts to teach us about boxing, right? So if you know anything, you have your power hand, which is your dominant hand. So it. How many people here are right-handed? I assume most people are right-handed. It's applicable even if you're left-handed. You would just switch stances. But essentially, you set your you set your power hand back, so that's going to be like a big blow. And then you have your weaker hand forward, which would be a jab. That's what they call a jab. So you jab with your weaker hand, and then sometimes you cross with your power hand when you have the opportunity. So this this guy tells us to stand in a circle. We're standing in this big circle. And he says to lock eyes with the person across from you and pretend you're actually really punching this guy. So I lock eyes with this guy across from me. He's kind of skinny, but he looks serious. And he has, like, murder in his eyes. And he's like, I talked to him afterwards, and he said that he has been going for a year in training, and he's also a painter at SCAD, which is Savannah College of Art and Design. So he's a painting major. So that was pretty funny after the fact. But anyways, he locks eyes with me, and he's like, He's like trying to kill me. So he's like throwing his jab, jab. So our trainer, he tells us, jab, just throw your jab, throw your jab, keep throwing your jab. And then once in a while, he says, do the cross. So he keeps saying, jab, jab, jab. 
And I and five minutes in, I'm like, yeah, like I'm getting this guy, like this painter guy. I'm getting him jabbing, jabbing. Ten minutes in, I'm like, okay, like I think I have a shoulder injury. <laughs> and I'm like, jab. Twenty minutes in, I'm like, jab, jab. <laughs> and then this guy, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, whatever his name is, he's looking at me and he still has murder in his eyes, and he's definitely beating me, you know. So all that to say, I feel as though prayer has become like our weakened left shoulder. We can't throw the jab. We don't know how to defend. We don't know how to keep distance from us. We don't know how to use it properly because we just haven't learned what it is and how to use it in our lives. And we've lost a lot of its power. So today we're going to see prayer for what it is, and we're going to see it play out in the book of Joshua 10. So I want to bring a little bit of power back to prayer in our lives. So I'm going to have a couple parts of the sermon. First, the first part, we're just going to define our terms. A wise man whose name may or may not be Daniel once told me that a wise man told him that you need to define the terms of your, of your discussion. So before you enter in a discussion with someone, you need to define the terms so that you're on the same page because you might be thinking of the same thing in two different ways and then it just causes confusion. So first and foremost, I wanted to define prayer for y'all in part one, and that's going to that's gonna have three parts. So when you look online or when you look in the Word, prayer doesn't really have a concrete definition. Most, most people describe it as talking with God, communicating with God, um, asking God, requesting of God something, or asking Him to enact His will. It's a pretty basic definition. John Piper he defines prayer as intentionally conveying a message to God, which keeps it pretty broad because there's so many different types of prayers, right? But it's important because prayer is intentional and you're conveying a message to God. You're, you're sending him a message. But I kind of went through all of these options and I also looked up the words for prayer in the Bible and I read almost every single verse in the New Testament and the Old Testament that uses the word prayer, and I came up with this definition. So what I've got is, feel free to critique it later, not during the sermon, hopefully. Critique it later, discuss it in your gospel communities. I would love that. Come up with 10 verses that prove me wrong on this definition. That would be amazing. But the definition is, prayer is an expression of faith that requests God to enact his will and leads to the praise and worship of him alone. So the reason why I do this, I want to, I'll just read it again. It's prayer is an expression of faith that requests God to enact his will and leads to the praise and worship of him alone. So there's three main parts that I wanted to draw out of this definition, which I think it's critical for us to understand prayer. First and foremost, we need to know that prayer is an expression of faith. So a lot of those other definitions don't really allude to that fact, but I wanted to make it very clear today that prayer is directly intertwined with your faith. So that, that gives it a little bit of gravitas or weight or power in our lives because most of the time we talk about it like it's communication or it's just something that you do, um, a conversational that you do with God. But there's a little bit more gravity or weight to it than just that. So we see in James chapter 1 that... We learn in James chapter 1, it talks about wisdom, and it, it tells us that if anybody lacks wisdom, ask of God freely. And then James chapter 1, verse 6, it says, But let him ask in faith 
without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So that essentially is showing us that when the wind changes, your position changes, you turn, you ask for something different, different your request changes, and praying without faith is like being tossed by the wind. So I'm, I'm going to keep an eye out. I might be, sometimes I'm kind of loud, sometimes I'm not. I don't want to wake up my son, but um, if I see anyone falling asleep, I, I might just randomly be like, hey, wake up, <laughs> and then everybody will wake up. So I saw someone falling asleep. But so back to it. So prayer is an essential part of our Christian walk. It's, it's tied to our faith. It's an expression of our very faith. So we, we need to know that prayer helps establish our faith and that, and that although we tend to talk about the fruit that our faith produces, this is something that's deeper than the fruit. It's foundational. It's, the, it's about our roots. It's where our roots are going, where our roots are founded, the foundation of our building. So um, you can kind of compare it to the, the roots of a tree versus the fruits of a tree, or you can compare it to the foundation of a building, um, or you can compare it to maybe even the wheels of a car. So without wheels, a car's going nowhere. Without a foundation building, or with a bad foundation, a building's leaning or it's toppling over. Without good roots, a tree is not producing good fruit, or it might even topple over as well. We we'll take a look at that a little bit later. So in Matthew chapter 6, we also see Christ clearly say that prayer is something that happens in secret. Those types of things, foundational things and things that are that dig deep and plant our faith and make us strong, um, they tend to happen in secret. They, they're not the things that people see. So we normally talk a lot about the fruit that our faith produces, um, and we talk about the way that it's, it comes about. We talk about serving others, loving others, serving our community, doing good things, many, many things that are fruit. But we rarely, we rarely focus as much on establishing the thing that produces the fruit. So I wanted to keep that as the first phrase of the definition that prayer is an expression of faith so that we realize that we need to care about prayer a lot more than we maybe do. We need to develop that jab, and we need to understand there's a weight to prayer than a lot more than what we realize there is. So second, second, we see that prayer is a request for God's will to be done. So while we have this expression of faith, then we have this actual action in which we, express, we request from God for his will to be done. So in 2013, many of you have heard of this story about how I came to, to turn my life over to the Lord, and it eventually led to prayer, many prayers being answered pretty powerfully. First and foremost was meeting April, my wife. But um, I'm sorry, I apologize if I've told you the story like five times, the gospel community. But uh, one of the coolest prayers that was ever answered in my life came in 2013 on the heels of this great decision to serve the Lord with my life. So um, shortly after making that decision, I meet April, and shortly after meeting April, um, on the first day, actually, I met her in person. I told her that I was going to marry her. So shortly after that, shortly after her shock and she calmed down, um, I decided to actually propose and court her. I decided to court her, then propose. So I come up. <laughs> well, I decided to propose, but she was like, maybe we should like date first. So 
Anyways, this all happens, and I'm figuring out the proposal, right? So right off the bat, I'm kind of on the heels of this new life of serving the Lord with my with my heart. So right off the bat, I think about the proposal, and I'm like, okay, I got to set aside three months' salary and like buy her a really nice ring. So I put aside this money, three months' salary, and I say, okay, I'm going to buy her this ring. But as I think about it and pray about it, I'm eventually convicted by the Spirit that wait, that doesn't make sense. That's not biblical at all, right? Like you're not going to find that in any book of the Bible. So where did that come from and why am I even doing it? So I asked myself this question and then I have a revelation and I realize that I don't need to do that because it's just something the world has instituted. So I decide to take two thirds of that money and put it aside and use one third of the money to buy April a ring. So April, I apologize that your ring's not as nice as it could have been, but I take the two thirds then And I decide instead to invest it in the kingdom of God. So April and I both have an affinity to encourage and build up children and youth. And she obviously is a pediatrician, so she does that on a daily basis. I just love doing that and encouraging um, young children to honor and serve the Lord. But I decide to take this two-thirds of the money, that sum, and divide it between five orphanages around the world that are honoring the Lord with their ministry. So I split up the money, I send it to these orphanages, and I'm really excited because I send it and I tell them this whole story, and I'm excited because the Lord's doing a lot in my heart, and I ask them, hey, can, like April's making a sacrifice, can you please send videos and pictures and whatever you can so that I can compile them and make a really sweet video in which people are just encouraging April and thanking her for her generosity and praising the Lord. So I ask for all these things. I send this email and like a, a couple of weeks pass and I haven't heard anything. So I, I'm essentially thinking, okay, these guys are probably really busy. And they're like, there's one in Africa, one in India, one in South America. They're all over the place. So I'm sure they're busy. And then a couple months pass and then I'm like, okay, like this is pretty sad. Like I had this whole plan, like this whole vision. I wanted this to happen. I wanted to make a great video and it's just not happening. So I'm kind of coming to terms with it, and I'm realizing, okay, maybe, like, I just Google search these places and, like, find pictures online and make a slideshow. <laughs> so it's not coming It's not coming out the way I expected it to. So I sit there one day, and I'm thinking about this, and as I'm dwelling on the Word, I come to Psalm 37, and as I dwell on Psalm 37, I come to verse 4, and verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I look at this verse, and I'm reading this on my phone. I stare at this verse, and I ask myself two questions. First, am I delighting in the Lord? Second, what is the desire of my heart? So as I look at this, I realize that, Lord, I truly am delighting. So I pray the prayer, Lord, I'm truly delighting in you. This is a blessed time of my life. I want to honor you with all aspects of my life. I pray this prayer, and then I realize the desire of my heart is selfishly almost and uniquely just to get those emails, you know, to get videos, which is like not a great desire. I probably should have used this moment for something greater, but I will, I take that back because now I'm married to April. Okay, so back to the story. So I I think uh, truly the desire of my heart is to get these emails. And literally as I read this verse and I'm praying this prayer, I get a Gmail notification. And it's one of the organizations from Africa. And they say, hey, Vinay, sorry, sorry, it took so long. God's timing is crazy. They said, hey, Vinay, sorry, it took so long. Here are a whole bunch of videos. And it was videos of these kids just like singing songs and like happy and saying thank you to April. 
And then I'm reeling at this point, and I'm like, praise the Lord, he's so good. One is good. Like, I can work with one. I can do it. And I'm like, I get ready for work. I, I do my one and a half hour commute to work in Houston, Texas, and I'm praying, and I'm praising the Lord, and I'm so thankful. And then I get to work, and another organization emails me. And then I'm like, what in the world? This is not real. And then another organization emails me. And four of the organizations email me on that day that I pray that prayer. So all that to say is prayer is really a request for God's will to be done. So you might be wondering, what is God's will? In that instance, it was very unique to me. I understood what was going on in my life, in my heart, and the Lord really desires to give us the things that delight and desi the desires of our heart. But um, for you, it might be different. So all I can say really in regards to God's will is that it might be a personal journey for you as you discover it in your own life and for particular circumstances, but in God's word, it's pretty clear what his will is. A couple examples that I drew out from scripture, first was in 1 Thessalonians verse 3. It says that the, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So that's a big one because we see that the will of God is your sanctification. So Isaiah, a couple of weeks ago, talked about secret sin, and he, dwelt, he spent a good amount of time on the subject and described it in great detail, and it was a great message. I encourage you all to go listen to it, but he talked about secret sin, and I know many people struggle with this, but if you read in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the will of God is your sanctification, that means that he has, there's great power in asking God to relieve you and to, to separate you from your sin. He doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't desire it. So you can pray powerful prayers and ask God to relieve you of that. Um, second, another example in 1 Timothy 4, 2, verse 4, and 2 Peter 3, verse 9, we see that God's will is that all would be saved. We even see that in John 3, 16, right? He came to, to for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he loved the world. He desires that, that none would perish and that all would be saved. So again, we pray prayers for people to be saved, but this is God's will. If we take it seriously and in faith pray, that's his desire and great things can be done in Gainesville, in the U.S., in, the, in globally, in the world. And then another one, this is a big one, 1 Thessalonians 5 says that, verse 18 says that God's will is for you to give thanks in all circumstances. That's a big one. So that means all the grumbling and all the struggling, all the complaining that we do in our daily lives. God's will is for us to give thanks, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what we're facing. His desires for, desire is for us to give thanks to him. So Elizabeth Elliot, if you don't know who she is, she's pretty awesome. Um, she has many books, and her husband was a martyr of the faith. But Elizabeth Elliot has a great quote regarding prayer. It says, prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. Amazing things happen, and we are given the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit's prayer. So know his will in your life and pray with faith, and powerful things can happen. So those are the first two. The third one we see, the third aspect of prayer in our definition. Again, just to remind you, the definition is prayer is an expression of faith that requests God to enact his will and leads to the praise and worship of him alone. 
So the third thing is obviously praise and worship. So if if your prayer life, if your prayer is not leading to praise and worship, something is wrong there. Um, prayer leads and causes praise and worship of God. Even in that instance I just described to you of my own life, I just was drawn to praise him, drawn to worship him for who he is and his goodness. So this whole subject, we're going to come back, circle back to you in our final part of the sermon and discuss at the end because I feel like it's a better segue into communion in which we can actually exercise praise and worship of God. So, again, prayer, an expression of faith, it requests God to enact this will, and it leads to praise and worship. So, all that to say, part two of the sermon is going to be looking at Joshua chapter 10. So, in Joshua chapter, chapter 10, we really see this all play out and come out in different aspects. If you don't remember from last week, Theo had a great sermon regarding the Gibeonite deception in Joshua chapter 9. So Gibeon was, they were Canaanites, the Gibeonites were Canaanites, and the Israelites were were tasked with destroying all of Canaan and utterly destroying Canaan. So in chapter 9, we have the Gibeonites deceiving Israel into thinking that they're from a distant land and want to worship the Lord, and Israel makes a huge blunder, and it says in chapter 9 that they did not consult the Lord. So they did not pray. So Israel, without consulting the Lord, they make this covenant with Gibeon. And then after the fact, they found out Gibeon, they were Canaanites. The Lord holds them to their covenant because the Lord is a, a God of promises and covenants. And the Lord holds them to this covenant, and they just have to live by it. And Gibeon is just a part of, part of the, the country now, in a sense. So we're coming into chapter 10 with all of that happening, and we already have these issues happening because of prayerlessness. But in chapter 10, we see that the issue of prayerlessness is really compounded. It gets even worse. It kind of snowballs. But before we get into all of that, um, there's a really interesting thing that happens in the very first verse. So in chapter 10, verse 1, we see this character, Adoni Zedek. So this is very interesting because Adoni Zedek is, and this whole situation actually, he gathers together five kings and he puts five kings together to fight against the Israelites. So there's a similar situation that goes down. I don't know what it is, but there's five kings versus four kings in Genesis chapter 14. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but these five kings fight four kings. I don't know why they gather together in groups of five and why the one was missing, but Five kings versus four kings in Genesis 14, and these kings fight, and Sodom and Gomorrah is intertwined in this mix, and essentially one set, the set of four kings beats the set of five, and they take Lot, who is Abram's nephew, captive. So Abram is father Abraham, who leads to Israel. So this is way before Israel is even a nation and a people. It's back before is Jacob or Israel is even born. So Abram hears that Lot, his nephew, is taken, and he's like, this is, a no, this is a no deal. So he gathers together 300 people, and he chases after these five kings. He goes after them. He destroys them. He takes Lot back. And then as he's bringing Lot back, he passes by, I, get, I guess he passes by this place, Salem, and this mysterious guy comes out whose name is Melchizedek. So it seems like Zedek is a generational name, kind of like Caesar. So we have in Joshua 10, Adoni Zedek, Adonai Zedek, 
And then we have in Genesis 14, this guy, Melchizedek. But in Genesis 14, the crazy thing is that Melchizedek comes out to bless Abraham. He blesses Abraham, and it says that he's a priest of the Most High God. So remember, remember this. We think, that gen, we think that the Old Testament is all focused on Israel and that God is working only through Israel. But here we have Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, who's a Canaanite king, who's actually a priest of the Most High God. So the priest of the Most High God comes out. He blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him a tithe, one-tenth. So Abraham is essentially saying, he's higher than me. So he's giving him tithe. He's a priest. Abraham confirms it. And then you see Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 7 as well, which is really interesting. But all that to say, when you come fast forward to Joshua 10, after Israel is a nation and everything is established, you have this new guy, Adonis Zedek, who's nothing like his predecessor, right? His predecessor was a, a priest of the Most High God. He feared God. And you can assume Salem, which was Jerusalem, did fear God in some sense too, because he was king of Salem. But then now you have Adonis Zedek in verse 1, who in verse 2 says he feared greatly, but it wasn't God anymore. So the Canaanites, these people didn't fear God anymore, and they came down a, a far path, and they're far away from where they were previously. And we talked about this previously, that Canaan was a land known for murdering babies and sacrificing them to their idols and their gods and all sorts of wickedness. So that's just a side note that there's a lot of depth happening here and a lot of connections between in the Word of God that hopefully you guys can go back and look up Genesis 14, Hebrews 7, learn about Melchizedek and what he represented. But anyways, in Joshua 10, we really have this, this concept of prayer play out in three big ways. So there's three big movements. First and foremost, prayer, we see prayerless compounding consequences, which is in the first six verses. And then we see the Lord's will empowering. And then we see prayer according to his will being answered. So it's important to note the sequence of events. God's will empowers prior to prayer being answered. So it's inter intimately intertwined with God's will, and prayer must come with faith in his will. So we'll run through these verses real quick. First and foremost, we have prayerless compounding consequences. So we see that Israel in chapter 9 was stuck in this covenant with Gibeon because of a deception since they didn't pray. And then we see in chapter 10, Adonis Zedek compounds the situation and he gathers five kings to destroy Israel since they have an alliance with Gibeon and Israel has, is obliged or obligated to respond and protect. So in the first, we won't read the verses um, since we read them earlier. We'll save that for some of the other verses in the chapter. Well, we see this prayerlessness compound. So I just wanted to point out that there's two main ways that you go, prayer goes awry in life. First and foremost, I think prayer tends to go amiss. You pray for things that um, you desire rather than what God desires. And we see that clearly in James chapter 4. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So praying amiss is a huge problem. I would encourage y'all to, to 
check your prayers and see if you're praying amiss to spend it on your own passions, your own desires, rather than God's. But here we see in Joshua chapter 10, just prayerlessness, which is not praying at all. So that's a big deal as well. We tend to not pray at all in life, and it, it causes many problems. In Theo's sermon last week, he touched on the subject, and he listed, I believe it was 15 points, but it was a great list from Nancy DeMoss. And some of the items was prayerlessness leads to sin against God. It is sin against God. Prayerlessness is direct disobedience to the command of Christ. It's direct disobedience to the word. It makes me vulnerable to temptation. It expresses independence or no need for God. It gives place to the enemy. The list goes on. Prayerlessness is a huge problem in our lives. It's like that weak jab, and it opens us up, opens us up for much pain, much suffering. Um, but I think probably the worst problem or consequence of prayerlessness is that you never give God the praise and the worship and the glory that he's due. And you see that really in Luke 17. If you're familiar with the passage, um, Christ heals 10 lepers, only one returns and praises him. And then he asks the question, he says, the one returns and falls on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Again, we see this theme come back. He wasn't even an Israelite. He wasn't even a Jew like Melchizedek. He was a Samaritan. He was a Gentile. Um, and then Jesus says, then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So don't let your, your prayerless, prayerlessness persist and don't allow it to lead to not praising and worshiping God. So in this particular circumstance, we see that the prayerlessness of the Israelites leads Joshua to make this covenant with Gibeon. The covenant with Gibeon leads the Israelites to this war with Adonizedek and his allies. And it's just a whole big mess. And they're in a big, they're, they're in a huge mess. So second, um, we see that after, after this prayerlessness that's compounded um, over each other in verses one through six, we see that the Lord's will is the thing that empowers or changes the circumstances. So the Lord's will shifts everything in verses 7 through 11. So let's just read those verses. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along. Um, verse 7 says, So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the scent of Bethorin and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were, while they were going down the scent of Bethorin, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So we see here that the Lord's will is revealed in this passage, and it really empowers the Israelites to be victorious. And it's the Lord's will alone. So it's, it's important to notice the pattern that the Lord's will happens and is revealed prior to Joshua's big prayer that this passage is known for. So it's God's will that actually leads to powerful prayer, and God's will 
and faith in his will that leads to your, your prayer doing much in this world. So in this instance, God's will kind of seems harsh. And in Joshua in general, and in, in a lot of Genesis, God's will seems a little bit harsh as he calls them to utterly destroy people and destroy, not keep not one person alive and, that of, and things of that sort. So it's always shocking when we see these things. I don't, I don't want to pretend that I understand the way that the Lord works, but there is a parallel passage in Isaiah chapter 28. Um, in Isaiah 28, it mentions the Valley of Gibeon in verse 21. And it's important. I don't know if that is referring specifically to this instance or there's another instance with King David. But either way, um, in, this, in this verse, it says, For the Lord will rise up as, a mount, as on Mount Perazim, and in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. So all I can say is that God's work is strange. God's work is alien. Um, and I think that's, that should be a comfort to us because that's why he's God and we're not. If we could understand it, it doesn't make sense, right? It wouldn't, then he wouldn't be God. But that chapter, Isaiah 28, is really beautiful if you read the whole thing because eventually, eventually it leads to this portion at the end where it says, it says God's work is strange, his work is alien. Um, and at the end it says, does he go on crushing the grain forever? Does he go on tilling the ground forever? So nobody goes and tills the ground forever and ever breaking it up and getting it ready. Eventually they sow seeds. Eventually life comes up out of the ground. Eventually you crush the grain and you use it to make bread. So God is in periods of time, he's crushing, he's tilling, he's doing those things, but it's all for the purpose of bringing about life and good bread and bread is great. So, we see here in the second portion of this chapter that the Lord's will really empowers the Israelites to be successful. It's really just the Lord working in verses 7 through 11. If you look at verse 8, he reveals this will. Then verse 9, it says that the Lord threw them in, into a panic. And then in verse 11, it says that there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel. So it's all the Lord working. And the Israelites at this point are prob probably viewing this whole thing and it's it's semi-blowing their mind, right? There's like hailstones from heaven falling down and things are going their way really well. So they obviously know it's the Lord. Um, and then you kind of transition to this final portion of the passage in which prayer we see that prayer according to his will is answered. So the Israelites are encouraged, then Joshua is encouraged to pray according to his will, and it's answered. So in the final verses, it says, verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. The Amorites are descendants of Canaan or Canaanites, so they're Canaanites, um, over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of the Lord, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ahalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set up for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. I love that final verse. It just says like nonchalantly. So Joshua returned and all of Israel to the camp of Gilgal when 
the sun just literally stood still in the sky. <laughs> but all that, all that points to the fact that when you pray according to his will, it will be answered. So I don't know if you stop at verse, if you stop at verse 11, it seems as though God's will is being done, right? It seems like everyone's going to be destroyed. God did it. He dropped hailstones from heaven. It's done. So I don't know if Joshua's prayer is even necessary, right? So I don't know if the things that we pray for, the way that they happen is even necessary for his will to be done, but obviously it's completely beneficial and the Lord obliges it for the sake of us, I would say, and for the sake of his praise and his glory ultimately. So we see that the Lord is really redeeming the whole circumstance in this instance. After his will is revealed um, and Joshua and the Israelites are faithful, he starts to twist and redeem the circumstances back to something good. And even more than that, previously when we saw that prayerlessness compounded the consequences of sin, we see here that we see in this whole passage, actually, that the Lord's will and answered prayer really compounds his goodness and his love and multiplies these things on the earth. So one example, we see that Gibeon is kind of redeemed here because Israel is, is called to protect them. But then even further than that, if you look at First Kings chapter 3, you have this crazy um, verse in there, in verse, starting in verse 4, in which Solomon Um, It says, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. So it's crazy because this this great deception that led to prayerlessness or prayerlessness that led to this great deception that led to this whole war and led to this great event eventually is redeemed. And it's redeemed even more than we can even imagine because Gibeon becomes a place where the very tabernacle is stored. Theo mentioned this last week. Um, But the tabernacle was literally stored in Gibeon. It was a place for sacrifice, a place for altars. It's a place in 1 Kings chapter 3 where Solomon goes, he sacrifices, and the Lord appears to him, and he asks for wisdom, and he gets his wisdom. So Gibeon becomes this crazy place and example for the Lord, which I don't even understand how the Lord can do these things. But um, we see that um, even last week, Theo shared this quote from Spurgeon, which was beautiful. It says, when you stand before men, ask little and expect less. But when you stand before God, ask much and expect more. So we know that from Ephesians chapter 3, that he provides exceedingly and abundantly above more than we can even think or ask for. So God provides more than we can ask for, even in these adverse circumstances um, where Gibeon deceived them and there's this war going on. God is still doing more than we can imagine. Um, there's this there's this great example um, that relates to that can relate to faith in Arizona. So University of Arizona has this has this whole setup called Biosphere Two. I don't know if y'all are familiar with it, but at Biosphere Two, they essentially set up this um, area where they were simulating the perfect environment. So they set up the perfect environment and they get all things right and it starts working, like the trees and the plants and everything is growing really fast and they're growing bigger and faster than they they would outside or outdoors. But after some time, eventually the scientists started seeing trees just falling over. So trees would just fall over and they were like, when the world's happening, this environment's perfect. We like designed it this way and, and they couldn't figure it out. So after they tried tried and tried and tried, they realized that they never accounted for harsh winds. 
And in actuality, harsh winds on the tree would cause it to create a special type of bark and it would cause the roots to dig deeper and get bigger and it would cause trees to be able to stand and survive much longer. Um, and the scientists never realized that this was such a necessary thing. So again, the, the condition of your roots is so essential to how you're going to survive and how you're going to be able to defeat enemies. You're going to be able to honor the Lord and serve the Lord. So where your roots are planted by streams of water bolsters you yourself. And also there's um, trees that are planted and they're bolstered together because of the root system that's combined. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with mangroves, things like that, but those guys will last forever and they're beautiful. But it's really, pr I, wanna, I wanna suggest to y'all and I want y'all to listen closely and I wanna suggest that prayer is really the key to greater joy in your life. It's the key to greater peace, greater power, and it's the key to deep roots and a strong foundation in the Lord. We really let go of it and lose sight of all these things. But I wonder why we do that. Why do we forfeit this? Who doesn't want greater peace? Who doesn't want greater joy? Joy to the full, like in John 15. Um, and ultimately, we see this beautiful uh, finalization of prayer in Revelation. If you're familiar with Revelation 5, it talks about the throne and it talks about the lamb that was slain, which is the lion. Um, of the tribe of Judah. And in, in this description in Revelation 5, we see this beautiful example of synesthesia. So it's the crossing of senses, but it says that it says that there's a bowl filled with incense, which is the prayer of the saints. So these these this bowl is this golden bowl is filled with incense, which the Lord smells, it pleases it, him, and it's the prayer of the saints. So that should be such a blessing to you because that means a lot of times we pray and we desire the fruit to be born. We desire to see the prayer answered. But the very act of praying is pleasing to the Lord. So prayer itself, you praying, whether it's answered or not, it's pleasing to the Lord. And if that's the desire of your heart and the desire of your life, to live a life pleasing to God so that in heaven you might want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, then prayer itself is getting you to that goal. So... We see in Joshua 10, all this play out. We see prayerlessness, compounding consequences, but then we see God's will really empowering um, the Israelites and changing the circumstances. And then we see that prayer according to his will being answered powerfully and compounding um, in the opposite fashion, compounding righteousness and goodness and, and all things that bring life. So in the final part of this sermon, I just want to discuss quickly the fruition of prayer, which is praise and worship. Um, there's not much to be said here, except the fact that prayer certainly leads to praise. I felt it in my own life, in my own stories, and in my own heart. And probably the biggest examples of prayer that we see is are in the Psalms. And the Psalms cover the, the spectrum of prayers, thanksgiving, supplications, doubts, fears, whatever it might be, discussions with God for his will to reign. Um, and the most beautiful thing that you could really see is the last five Psalms. Um, I remember reading this and realizing what was, going, what was going down in the last five Psalms, and it just led me to praise as well. But if you look at it in Psalm 146, and there's 150 Psalms, the last five, 146 to 150, 
In Psalm 146, verses 1, which is the first verse, and 10, which is the last verse of that psalm, it starts with praise the Lord, and it ends with praise the Lord. And then if you look at Psalm 147, it starts with praise the Lord, ends with praise the Lord. Psalm 148, it starts with praise the Lord, ends with praise the Lord. Psalm 149, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. 150, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It says praise the Lord more than 40 times just in the last five Psalms. So that should be an encouragement to you that if the Psalms end in praise and worship, our hearts and all that we do for the Lord and our prayers should lead directly to praise and worship of God. So that being said, we see this curious um, quote in Joshua chapter 10. And it's attributed to the book of Jashar. So it w- I would be remiss if I didn't address that. So the book of Jashar, I would equate it probably to something like the Psalms, where it's documenting um, experiences, prayers, or things for to give praise to God and that people would praise. And supposedly, that's what it is. I would warn you that the book of Jashar has not survived. You might go on the internet and find the book of Jashar. It's not the book of Jashar. I wouldn't read those. I don't know what's in them. I didn't read them myself. myself. But it's it hasn't been found, but it's important to note here that these things are written down, that the people remember them. They're written down for a purpose. I don't know why I didn't make it into the Bible or the canon, but it's cool here because we see that these things are documented. And I would sug- I would assume that in your own lives, great things have happened through the Lord and what he's done in your lives. And I don't know if you've written them down or if you spend time remembering them. I would spend time this week remembering what the Lord has done, remembering who he is and how he's displayed that in your hearts and your life and praise him for it. So in 2017, I was at my sister's wedding and she was getting married to my now brother-in-law who they were both with us in Savannah this past week. But at this wedding, They had 50 bridesmaids and groomsmen, I think like 27, 23. It was crazy. But they're both in full-time missions, so they've had experiences with many people all over the world. So I'm in this this wild bridal party with 50 people, and it's a lot of fun. But on, on wedding day, I'm standing there. I'm all ready to go. I'm trying to help out with different things. And one of the guys, the groomsmen, he comes up to me, and he's like, hey, hey, you're Vinay, right? And I'm like, yeah, like, who are you? <laughs> and he and he says he's John. Um, and then he proceeds to tell me, Vinay, like, I just wanted to let you know you're you're the reason why I married my wife. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, this is crazy. I like, I've never met you before. And he said, here's my wife, and I have two kids. He now has three kids. So John is a missionary in Africa, and John got forwarded an email in 2013 from a guy named Vinay asking him to send videos of his the, the kids that he takes care of. And um, he saw the email, and it was all about this girl named April. John had been pursuing a girl named April for years. She never responded, and he was about to give up. And he got the email, and he decided to pursue one more time. And she she responded. They got married, and now they have three kids. They're serving the Lord in Africa. So... All that to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, right? What else can you say to that? It's definitely not my doing. It's not anything that I can 
concocted. It wasn't my vision. It was the Lord's will. It was his goodness. It was his love that came forth. So just to end, I wanted to read these, this quote from In Tenderness, which is a beautiful song. It says, In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again, while angels in his presence sang until the courts of heaven rang, Oh, the love that sought me, oh, the blood that bought me, oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God, grace that brought me to the fold of God. Upon his grace I'll daily ponder and sing anew his praise. With all adoring wonder, his blessings I retrace. It seems as if eternal days are far too short to sing his praise. I can tell you for sin, eternal days are far too short to sing his praise. Right now, we have this really great opportunity to sing praise and worship God. And it's because he saved us from sin. And we praise the Lord. I'll just call the band up right now. We praise the Lord for that. Um, he he died on the cross. He saved us from sin, and we've been bought out of this wretched life and brought into life abundant. And we thank the Lord for that, and we're here. Um, communion is a beautiful uh, way to express your worship and express your praise. The band's going to lead us through communion right now. Um, I'm just going to pray real quick for us. Seems apt to end this in prayer since it was about prayer. I hope this encouraged y'all, and I hope that this week is a week of prayer for y'all, that you pray ceaselessly, that it never ends, and that you're encouraged to pray and dig your foundations deep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your great love to us, Lord. We thank you that you sought us in tenderness. We thank you that you love us deeply. We thank you that you care for our desires. We thank you that you've revealed your will to us. And we thank you that mysterious things have been revealed so that we might know them and dwell on things eternal, dwell on things that bring life, um, and we can put aside things that bring death, Lord. And we know that it was by your death on the cross that we were, we were drawn to life, and by your death on the cross, we can boldly approach the throne of grace, and we praise you and we worship you for that, Lord. Thank you, Christ, for your death. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your blood. We pray these things in your wonderful and matchless name. Amen.